You're listening to a sermon preached at Cross and Crown in Melbourne. We believe that God speaks through the Bible and he calls us to preach the word in season and out of season. We pray that as you listen, you'll be strengthened to know, love and live for Jesus. Heavenly Father, give us faith to receive your word, understanding to know what it means and the will to put it into practice. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Lord, and in his name. Amen. Well, uh, it took two years. The Prime Minister of Australia was a significant leader in the whole process. The end result was a national referendum. Every Australian of voting age had to join in. Together they were to decide whether Australia would be a republic. Our national life was possibly going to undergo fundamental changes. Um, If we voted yes then the changes would be huge administratively. But but they would also be enormous in terms of the identity of Australia. uh, But we would be saying that we're our own nation now. We are independent of the nation that gave us birth. If it had gone ahead, things, I think, would never have been the same for us in Australia again. But why do I start a sermon on Samuel this way? Well, I start this way because our passage today tells us of a time when the nation of Israel was grappling with a similar level of change. But that nation was not a British colony like Australia. No, this nation that we're talking about tonight is the one chosen and called by God. God's special people, God's holy nation, God's special possession, called into existence by him. He is God, their God and King. They are his people. Do you see? This is God's chosen people and you can't just tinker around with their constitution uh, without some serious thought and consideration. And we're going to watch some of this today. They are on the edge of such a change, you see. Let's see what happens. Let's go through the process. And let me tell you that as we look, we'll learn some incredibly valuable things. We will learn great things about God We will learn deep things about Israel and I will argue that we and the ancient Israelites have much more in common than we might imagine. So I'll also argue that God's response to them has much to teach us. So with that said, let's get down to work. Have your Bibles open or whatever digital form you use or whatever. So, and to make a start, I'd like to give you a brief historical and political framework. Way back in Genesis, you'll remember that the Lord called Abraham. He promised that he would make him a great nation, that he'd give him a land, that he'd bless him and he'd make him a blessing. Anyway, since then, all those things have happened. His descendants have been bound to God in covenant. Uh, They have conquered the land that God had promised to give them. And in in this part of Samuel, they are bound together in a loose tribal confederacy. So they're together. God ruled over them through people called judges. These judges helped Israel defeat their enemies. They also brought them justice and stability. Over the, next few, over the past few weeks, we have seen the last such judge in action. For I believe the last judge is Samuel. And last week we saw that God used him to help the people of Israel defeat the Philistines, as many of the judges before him did with other nations. So that's the big picture. We need just one more bit of background to understand. Uh, Stretch back in your memory. 
Remember where we began. Do you remember Hannah's story? You need to remember Hannah's story. You won't understand 1 and 2 Samuel without it. So remember Hannah's story. Do you remember her praise of the Lord? She taught us about the Lord's ways. And she mentioned the coming of an anointed one, a Messiah, a king. And then she left her son at Shiloh, and somehow we knew that the coming anointed one and her son were sort of entwined together. So that's chapter 1. Then in chapter 2, we're told of some internal factors that lead to kingship. In chapter 3, we find we meet a corrupt priesthood. Chapter 3 reveals that God deals with this by raising up the prophet Samuel. Chapter 4 shows us some external factors that are going on that seem to indicate the need for kingship. Aggressive Philistines. But chapters 5 and 6 demonstrate that such enemies are no real threat. After all, God can counter the Philistines and humiliate them on their own turf without Israel's armies even being present. That's not all. Last week, chapter 7 indicated that Samuel was an able leader. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 15 through to 17. So what have we learned up till this point in the, books of, in the book of Samuel? Hannah taught us kingship is coming, but everything since had, has taught us that kingship's not really necessary. And Israel itself acknowledges that. Just look at the end of chapter 7. Can you see it there? It's a fitting summary of the whole book of chapter 2 through to chapter 7. Look at verse 12. Israel has had a great victory from the Philistines and Samuel takes a stone. He names it Ebenezer and then he explains the name. The Lord has helped us up until this point. The point is that the Lord is their king and has been their helper. They need no one else. That's the background for everything that's going to happen in this chapter we look at today. Let's see what happens. Let's look at, look at with me at chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Samuel judged Israel well, but now he's getting on. And what's more, his sons are not like him. Look at verse 3. We are told that they did not walk in Samuel's ways. Where he judged Israel, they perverted justice. They turned aside after gain. They broke covenant law by accepting bribes. So the elders confront Samuel in verse 5 and they say this, Look, you're old. Sons, Your sons don't walk in your ways. Therefore appoint a king to judge us, the same as everyone else has got, the same as all the nation, other nations have. Verse 5. Can you hear what's going on? They've seen through what Samuel has done. You see, the norm in Deuteronomy is that God appoints judges, not the previous judge. But Samuel here has usurped God. He has appointed judges himself. It's not his job. He has made the role of judge, even more than that, hereditary, gets handed down. So the elders come to Samuel and let me paraphrase what I think they're saying. It goes like this, something like this. Listen, Samuel, you are getting on now. Your sons are not like you. They don't follow your ways. However, you've gone and made the role of judge hereditary. Now, if you're going to have a hereditary role, let's think a little more laterally, perhaps. Perhaps we should do what everyone else is doing these days. That is, they have kings. 
Let's go that way rather than having a perpetual judgeship. I think that's what's going on here. My sort of paraphrase. Friends, that proposal by the elders, let me tell you, is very radical. It is much more radical than what Samuel's proposing. It implies that Israel's going to have a whole new structure, a whole new identity. They will be a state ruled by a king or kings. So now we've got two options on the table. Let's see how Samuel responds. Look at verse 6. It lets us into Samuel's thoughts. He considered their demand wrong. So he turns to the Lord in prayer. And I want you to think about the context of this passage. What do you think it is that he considers wrong? I think that the context tells us. I think he's displeased that the elders have rejected his way ahead. And I think that you can see it in his prayer where God addresses the, the idea that they are rejecting him. In other words, God sees, I think, what Samuel's doing, but I think you can also see it in God's response in verses 7 to 9. Have a look at it. He says to Samuel, Listen to the people and to everything they say to you. They haven't rejected you. No, they've rejected me as king. They are doing the same thing that you and they have done to me since the day I brought them up from the land of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshipping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the kings who will reign over them. Look and listen at what is being said here by God. First, he surprisingly gives in to the people's request. Three times in 1 Samuel 8, he will tell Samuel, listen to all that the people are saying. Second, God effectively tells Samuel, I think, that he hasn't listened properly. He hasn't got his ears open. God says, they have not rejected you, but they've rejected me as king over them. God is telling Samuel he's reacted emotionally. He's not heard. He's not passed on their comments about his corrupt sons and the problem that poses. He's not heard and passed on the comment about a king like the other nations. As Judges 8 verse 23 says, the Lord is their ruler. And in the book of Judges, the Lord's rule was expressed by him rescuing them when they called upon him. He appointed judges to rule over them. He cared for them in numerous other ways. That was his way with his people, a way that he endorsed and set up. So now when they ask for a king, what are they doing? They're rejecting his rule. And that rejection is nothing new for this nation. As the Lord says in verse 8, they have done this from the moment he rescued them out of Egypt. In other words, as soon as they got their identity as his people, they've been, they've been doing the same thing. Here is Samuel, concerned with personal offence. But God, God's concerned that his people's fundamental allegiance to him is being overturned by an act of brazen idolatry. And that makes verse 9 very surprising. Look at it. He tells Samuel a second time, listen to them. However, he also tells Samuel to spell out the implications and consequences of what they're about to do. Look at the second half of verse 9. God says to Samuel, but solemnly warn them 
and tell them about the customary rights of the kings who will reign over them. I wonder if I could just uh, give you a little aside here. Um, you see, we live in a world where pragmatism reigns. Um, we think about solutions, then we make plans to implement those solutions. Some of you are paid to do that. They are often ingenious and practical. They work. And our churches, I think, are often the very same. We have a problem, it could be diminishing numbers or it could be our lack of appropriate facilities, uh, so we put our brains together. And we think about solutions. Then we make plans to implement those solutions. And they're ingenious and practical and they work. But friends, let me tell you something. We churches are theological entities. Theological entities. They are a congregation of God's people, not our people. And while it's right to be pragmatic, there's a real risk with pragmatism. The risk is that pragmatism rules over theological truth that we do things because they work rather than because they arise out of God's truth. So we don't ask what God thinks. And in doing so, we expose ourselves to great risk. That's, that is, that our practical solutions end up being idolatrous because they remove God from the equation. It's a great risk. Samuel's solution of appointing his sons was exactly that. Israel's solution of proposing a king did that. And our decisions can do the same as well. Now please don't mishear me. I'm not saying you shouldn't be pragmatic. I'm a very pragmatic man, ask my wife. But no, our pragmatism should not be practically informed pragmatism. It should be biblical pragmatism. Does that make sense? So, now let's press on in Samuel's speech, verses 10 through to 18. First, I want you to notice a number of things about what he says. First, Israel wanted a king because of what that king might give them. However, God's response to them is to tell them that kingship is, not about, is more about taking than about giving. More about taking than giving. We've already heard that the sons of Samuel took bribes, chapter 8, verse 3. Now Samuel tells Israel that the king will take. You'll notice that the word take occurs multiple places, multiple times in this passage. Can you see it there? The king will take sons, verse 11. Take daughters, verse 13. Take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards, verse 14. Take a tenth of the grain and vineyards, verse 15. Take your male and female servants and a tenth of your cattle and your donkeys, verse 16. Well, what's more, when he does give, it will not be for his own people, but for his own sake. He will give to his servants, verse 14, and to his officers and servants, verse 15, as well as taking for his own use, verse 16. Listen very carefully to what God is saying here at this critical moment in their history. This is the first thing that Israel should know about the kings they are so desperate to have. These kings will not be characterised by giving. They will be characterised by taking from Israel. With that background, it's striking, you know, to notice that the word take, this is fascinating. When I first found this out, I, I was just, it just was mind-blowing. 
The word take is used three times in relation to David's actions with Bathsheba in 2 Samuel 12. Like a true predicted king, David took. He stole. He took another man's wife to be his own. And the same word that was used in this chapter is used there. Then he used his chief of army to kill the woman's husband to cover up his tracks. He took and he took. He stole. And so God took from him. But let's get back to our passage here. We'll come to those verses in time. But I think it's a, it's a deliberate echo of this text. Even David, the great David, took, took, took. It's very striking. Second thing that God wants to say to the elders of Israel is that they have very short memories. After all, their last experience of a king was who? Pharaoh in Egypt. And there, what did it mean for them? Slavery. Look at the end of verse 17. God tells his people that having a king will effectively mean they will be his slaves. It will mean a return to bondage in Egypt. But there's more. The third thing to notice is that God makes clear that having a king will not be without cost. Until now, their relationship with God had been immediate and dynamic. That will disappear. The escape from Egypt began with Israel groaning and their cry being received by God himself. Exodus 2, 23-25. God heard his people. Ever since then, they've simply had to call upon God and he would hear and rescue them. Book of Judges is all about that. But look at what God says here in verse 18. That immediacy is now going to be gone. The Lord will not listen. There's a tragic irony here, isn't there? Can you see it? Israel is about to forfeit something precious for a king and doesn't even seem to notice it. Listen to what the Lord says. When that day comes, this is verse 18, when that day comes, you will cry out because of the king you chosen for yourselves that the Lord won't answer you on that day. But having heard God's warnings, the people choose the path of self-rule, following along with Adam and Eve and everyone else since. God had rescued them and made them a distinctive nation in the Exodus, Exodus 19, 1-6. He had joined them to the, himself, the incomparable God that Hannah celebrated in chapter 2. But they no longer want to be a distinctive people, joined to an incomparable God. No, they want to be like all the other nations. What's more, they no longer want God to be their divine warrior as he had been in Egypt and just a chapter or two earlier on. Now they want a king to go before them in battle. Not God, but a king. Look and listen to verses 19 and 20. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like the other nations. Our king will judge us, go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel listens to what is, I think, a terrible act of treachery. He repeats their rejection before the Lord, verse 21, and the Lord says for a third time, listen to them, appoint a king for them. Verse 22, then Samuel defers the day of appointment of a king and he sends them off home. So there's our chapter. 
If you read on in Samuel, you'll find that despite this act of idolatry and sin, God does not desert. He stays with his people and he continues to be their God. And he even ties kingship into his covenant relationship with them. He even makes it part of his purposes with them. After all, who is he? He is the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He's the God of surprising generosity and kindness. But there's more that I want us to reflect on here. You see, I think that this chapter taps into a common theme in the Bible and a common attitude among humans. God's view is explained in the Bible and it's crystal clear from the very first page until the very last page. We humans are God's creation. We are created by him to be related to him and to have him as our king and our ruler. We were created, therefore, to be dependent beings. Dependent beings. But God is also clear in the Bible that all, humans, all human beings are fundamentally people who have a passion for self-rule. We, that is, we, we long to be independent from our maker. We long to be our own rulers, taking our own advice, depending upon ourselves. That's our nature. We are like the ancient Israelites. But we, we might look at them askance and say, oh, no, no, we are like them. We too have a passion for self-rule. Their attitude here is our attitude. Their idolatry is our idolatry. Oh, we're not caught at it every day, perhaps. But it is an underlying undercurrent for us. And it's to people like us that chapter 8 sends a timely warning. Warning. Do you remember what God said to the people of Israel about their king? Basically said, self-rule is going to be hell for you. It will be the rule of people like you, like me, self-interested. All about taking, not giving. Where people use other people for their own benefit and glory. Can you hear what God's saying in this chapter? He's saying that a world where we make ourselves kings and queens is a world ruled by people as self-centred as us. Where God has shifted to the periphery of our existence. Self-rule is hell on earth. So this passage reveals, us to the human, reveals to us the human predicament. It's a predicament as old as 1 Samuel 8. No, 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 it's as old as Adam and Eve in the garden. <laughs> Been there a long time before this. We know that God is good and great and able, don't we? But it seems so risky to allow him to be the ruler over our lives. Because self-rule is so ingrained in our experience, we think that having a God who would rule us would expose us to a life of unpredictability and precariousness. We're reluctant to accept God's rule because we don't know where it would lead and what God would require of us and maybe even what God would take from us. In other words, we're not sure that we can trust God to do a better job than ours. Isn't that true? Now, if that's you... Do you know what I want to do? I want to show you God the King in action. In the Bible, God tells us that his fundamental revelation of his kingship occurs 
at a particular moment in history when he sends his son Jesus into the world. Jesus is God in human form. And God, as God he thinks like God thinks and acts like God acts. He and his father understand that self-rule not only brings hell on earth, they understand that since heaven will only be filled with those who are happy with the rule of God, then those who are into self-rule are headed for hell. And so God the Father sends his son Jesus into the world to do the task of a godly king, of a supreme king. Rescue us from the tyranny of self-rule. And so Jesus comes into the world. He lives a perfect life. And as a true king should do, he does not take, but he gives. And he gives overwhelmingly. He gives his life on behalf of his people. He soaks up the punishment that was due to them because of their commitment to self-rule. He dies in their place. As it said in Mark 10.45, a good verse to memorise. For even the Son of Man did, did not come to serve, but to be, sorry, did not come to be served, but to serve and to, listen to this, give his life as a ransom for many. To give his life as a ransom for many. Can you see what Jesus does on the cross? It's a portrait of the rule of God in action. God's not a cruel and distant tyrant. No, God is the kind, generous, just, giving and forgiving God. He always has the best interests of his subjects in mind. He is a king you can love and adore. He is a king you can readily hand your life over to. And that brings us to what a Christian is. Can you see it here? You see, friends, a Christian, a Christian is someone who acknowledges this, this truth. A Christian is someone who acknowledges that deep in their being they are committed to self-rule. A Christian is someone who acknowledges that that is hell and who wants to be free from self-rule and its consequences. A Christian there is therefore someone who turns to God and asks forgiveness for having been dominated by self-rule and who accepts that from this point on they want to be their own king. They, sorry, they, they want God to be their king and they do not want to be their own king or queen. A Christian does this by what? By believing in Jesus. By accepting God's forgiveness offered in Jesus. By abandoning self-rule and living with Jesus as king and lord of their lives by mimicking their Lord. That is, living lives that turn away from self-centeredness and turning to lives of self-sacrifice for the well-being of others. So, I wonder if you'd permit me just to say one final word today. Based on all of this, as I look around, I wonder if there are some of you here today who are bound to self-rule. 
Perhaps you, you are distant from the loving rule of God that's demonstrated through his son. Or perhaps you've drifted away from it or become disheartened with God or maybe come to, have, to lack confidence in him and his loving rule. Or perhaps you've received ill at the hands of God's imperfect people. Friends, if that is you, then can I speak to you tonight? I wonder if I might urge you to fix your eyes on God's kingship as exercised in Jesus the Christ. That kingship is so different from any other rule in the world, in history. It is thoroughly kind. It is always benevolent. It, is, it uniformly always has your good at the forefront. And might I urge you to turn back to God through Jesus. To do so is to become his child. It is to become a Christian. Or, or to reaffirm that you want to live as a Christian. Friends, let me tell you, self-rule is hell. Free yourself from it. Turn back to God. Ask for forgiveness for clinging on to self-rule. And accept that from this point on you want Jesus to be your only Saviour, Lord and King. And if you've never done this before but want to do it today, then I urge you to talk to a friend or one of the leaders here today before you go home. They will be more than glad to help you for they know and love God, the generous King. And they want others to know him as well. Let's pray. Our Father God, when we look at your created order, we see that you made it good. When we look at what you did with your Son, we see that you are the Lord, the Lord, the gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. When we see the willingness of your Son to die, we see love. Father, please help us to trust this, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.